The Way Out Podcast, episode 70. My sober date is November 7th of 2005. And I believe that the love meditation was with God. And I just love nature. And um, I love the clouds and the grass and watching ants, like, march and help each other with their little twigs, you know, or food. And, and I was just in awe and wonder, I remember a lot as a young child. In our family, like, um, dynamics and stuff like parties and, and whatnot, like, I would see maybe she had had too much or... Um, I remember having actually a guttural reaction to alcohol, like an anger, you know, like an intense anger that alcohol was in existence from a very young age. So therein lies the mental obsession at a very young age, thinking, why does this, why does this potion make everyone so crazy? Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. I first met the guest of this week's and next week's episodes while on location with Omar Pinto of The Share Podcast and was immediately struck by her authenticity, wisdom, and warmth as it emanated from her seemingly effortlessly. Amber has been in sobriety since November 7th, 2005, and her wealth of experience, strength, and hope is a testament to not only the duration of her sobriety, but the quality of her recovery author of Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down, an active member of her recovery community, Amber shares what her early life was like and how addiction and alcoholism gripped her family life before the disease took aim squarely at her own life. Listen up. Amber, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy and amazing schedule to visit with us here on the Way Out Podcast. Uh, why don't you do all of us an amazing favor and introduce yourself to the Way Out Podcast audience. Uh, tell us what your sobriety date is uh, and uh, just uh, give us a, a brief overview of uh, uh, who you are and then we can kind of get into what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Okay, great. Well, my name is Amber Leo Murphy. I'm grateful to be part of On The Way Out um, podcast and um, my sober date is November 7th of 2005. Wait, and November 7th what? of 2005. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. You have been continuously sober since November 7th, right, of 2005. Yes. Congratulations. That's, yes. that's, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. By the grace of God. Yes, it is. It is. Grace is awesome. So tell me what, uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's see. Well, I am Minnesota born and raised and I, um, I, I'm, I'm from a loving family and I grew up in Minnesota though. I wasn't fully raised here in Minnesota and, um, 
I traveled a lot with my mother and my stepfather in, so I grew up also in Montana and Colorado and Texas. And I am, today I feel like more well-rounded because of those trips and moves. And I'm uh, also an author. I just released a book last month called Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down because God always lifts her up. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually called Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down. Yeah. I love it. I love the title of that. I love it a hundred percent. And I was on your website and one of the miracles that comes out of doing things like that, writing a book that uh, is purpose driven, right? That mm-hmm. is that people really connect to it, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. It's been so far received very well as far as connecting to it. A lot of women that have read it have finished it and completed it in a couple of days, though um, some are just still like reading it as a daily read. It's sure. a very easy read, and. Um, it just it it was a beautiful uh, it's been a beautiful experience a beautiful journey inside of writing the book it took about five years to get it uh, fully published and out on the shelves so it's it's really exciting it's been an exciting couple of months so tell us a little bit about let's uh, uh let's start uh, maybe the family of origin a little bit you said you come from a loving family <laughs> and uh, uh, born in uh, born in Minnesota but kind of moved around. Um, how would you describe your childhood? Was it generally happy? Was it a pretty good, pretty good childhood? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, it was my mother and I for the first eight years, uh, essentially, I think about eight years before she got married. I think she got married when I was nine. So, um, we lived in an apartment building, loved to swim. I, my cousins were, I was an only child. So my cousins were my family, um, my, my, like my brothers and my sisters. And I have a half brother and a half sister that I found out later about. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that was a beautiful miracle on its own. I just always wanted a brother and sister. So it was really cool. But as a kid, I can, I can remember being just, um, in wonderment a lot. I mean, my, my nickname as a child was La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> so you were sort so, of in your own world a lot as a child. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. And a, a mentor of mine, he calls it a love meditative state. Like if at the beginning of our lives, he, he told me and, and many others inside of, um, this course that I took with him about, uh, starting off in a love meditation. And I believe that the love meditation was with God and I just love nature. And, um, I loved the clouds and the grass and watching ants like march and help each other with their little twigs, you know, or food. And, and I was just in awe and wonder. I remember a lot as a young child and, um, yeah. So I guess my upbringing was, it was very, I could be fully self-expressed. That was okay in my home. Um, my mother was very open with me about her own trials um, with, uh, well, I mean, she, my mama, my mother is a recovered alcoholic as well. Yes. And so I, mm-hmm, yep, yep. She got sober when I was eight years old. Wow. So uh, yeah, so that so we're on this journey together. It's wonderful. And um but I can always remember being able to bring her everything and and that was okay, you know? Like right. and I can't say that that's the same for many people, but that's what I mean by love. Like if I brought something to my mother, um it was okay. I felt safe to do that. And but I do remember as a as a kid, like remember, um, I think about seven, maybe I was like around seven years old, I started to want to take like money or, ta- you know, like little dimes and nickels and quarters out of my mom's change and not tell her about it. There were things that I was honestly guilty for doing as a young child and not feeling good about and hiding from my mom. And I think that was the beginning stages of alcoholism. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, 
So I go from a love meditation state to being guilty. And now what do I want like to do? I want to cover the guilt. And I believe uh, alcohol did that for me we at a very young age. We can get rid of that, that uncomfortable feeling, that seemingly sort of overwhelming feeling. Uh, we find something that works for that, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yep. So, so I remember amazing. having... It's amazing that you oh. got to be in an environment of recovery, right? From, you know, the, sort of the age of eight on. And that, that, that uh, for, for me, sounds like, you know, that there were some, uh, uh, some serious benefits for you uh, to be in a relationship yeah. with your mother who was in recovery and, you know, working um, a, a program of recovery. And that allowed you to sort of benefit intrinsically because of that. Beforehand, was there any sort of sense as a child that you knew that there was something wrong with mom? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, as far as like, she didn't really drink around me that much. But in our family, like um, dynamics and stuff like parties and, and whatnot, like I would see maybe she had had too much or um, I remember having actually a guttural reaction to alcohol like an anger you know like an intense anger that alcohol was in existence from a very young age so therein lies the mental obsession at a very young age thinking why does this why does this potion make everyone so crazy you know Uh, (laughs) so so so, yeah from a very young age that this alcohol had a had an effect on people and as a kid you didn't like that no i didn't uh-uh right. I, and it, it it created an unpredictability in the adults who were supposed to be safe around me wow. but it was also like a, a battle because if they if they didn't have it they were grumpy right <laughs> right. right so you had conflicted feelings about this potion as you call it uh, which is a great yeah. word for it, it because uh, if they didn't have it, uh, it, you were exposed to some grumpiness in the family dynamic, which is uncomfortable and that's not fun. And if they did have it, uh, they were unpredictable. And that's fear, right? That's like this fear right. piece, right? I don't know what mom or uncle or aunt is going to do when they start drinking and I don't like it. Right, right, exactly. Yep. So when was um, the first time yeah, you experienced so, alcohol for yourself? So, uh, uh, actually, I was eight years old, okay. and I remember it clear as day. I um, had just gotten done babysitting, and a, and a family member um, had it uh, uh, some beer, and I asked if I could have some beer um, in a pink plastic cup. I was given the beer, and I, I took a sip of it, and... Um, cause I was curious. I was like, what is all, you know, I had that what is all mental obsession about, right? What is all yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then all of a sudden, like now it's, I kind of remember feeling like I was about to enter adulthood. Sure. Like a rite <laughs> of passage. This... Like this is yeah, like the right... exactly. Yeah. And then I remember it clearly going into my body my stomach got warm my ears got hot my chest got hot and all of a sudden I'll say this time and time again because I can still feel that feeling of feeling a little less fearful in my mostly like introverted self Ah, and and I was like whoa I want more of this (laughs) you know the word liquid courage like yes. I look back and I can see that that is what happened mm-hmm. in that moment. Like here I'm introverted. I'm in, in this love meditation with God yet now I'm guilty for stealing and all these things that like are happening that are more confusing in my life. Maybe friends not being as nice as they are. And all of a sudden I, I, I feel like I can be a little more courageous with this potion. Oh, I get it. Oh, can I have more, please? And then I wasn't given more. So uh-huh. that, and then I went on a on a tangent. Like from then on, it was the mental obsession was the other direction of I need to get more of that. I can so, definitely relate to that experience, 
Amber first having that first drink of alcohol and a lot of those feelings of anxiety and fear and and immediately dissolve, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this overwhelming feeling of sort of ease and there's a book that's big, that's blue, that talks about that sense of ease and comfort that we get when we take that first drink. And yes. uh, I absolutely 100% got that and uh, then immediately followed up, followed with what you said, which I thought was just great. More, please. Yep. <laughs> More. More, please. Yeah. More, please. In fact, I love and not, this. Somebody once told me that their favorite, their favorite, uh, their favorite uh, uh, drug was more, right? Whether it was alcohol, whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that, so I... How does that like manifest then, Amber? You have this first sort of uh, 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 drink, and it's a very memorable experience, and it gives you a very memorable feeling, and it, it kicks that obsession. And uh, are you looking for opportunities to 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 drink again? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I remember. Um, well, it's interesting that the. the first year that I remember having a drink was the year my mother actually got sober. But before that, before her own recovery had happened, um, I remember there were empty beer cans on the counter, you know, from a party from the night before Mm -hmm. and taking swishes of the beer cans to see if I could still get that same effect. And it wasn't quite. And I remember there was a cigarette butt in one of the cans. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, we've all done it. We've all done it. Uh, we've all done uh, it. Yeah. And, and and not quite getting that same effect. But I mean, um, it was a searching. It was it was a knowledge of like, it, uh, I want more of that. But it was also like I wasn't aware at that time in my life that it also brought upon more fear and more anxieties. <laughs> inside of being sneaky and wanting more you know and so yeah if if a friend's parents like had it um you know in their cupboards I was going toward it or trying to you know manipulate friends to get them to see my way of we should just you know drink some of that and I don't think I don't think I succeeded inside of that until after we moved to Montana um, I remember being at a friend's house and, you know, I was, I was a pimply kid. I was very awkward looking. I had big teeth and I was bullied a lot for my looks, you know, kids can be pretty vicious and absolutely um, can be absolutely 100%. Yeah. They can be, they could be cruel. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I, I think what happened is that I, I went inward even more like and bonded to self even more of like, I can only trust me. And the thing that would relieve that would be alcohol. And, um, and, and that was the mental obsession. Just, I need some of that. And, you know, a lot of friends were like not down with stealing their parents' liquor. They just weren't. Now I was really young trying to get my friends to get their parents' liquor and, and coming up short, you know, empty handed. But I do remember one evening being at a friend's house and the parents had gone to sleep. And I think we were like 12 or 13 at the time. And, um, in Montana and, and then mixing brandy with water and in a cup and, uh, yuck, (laughs) but (laughs) Oh my God, I just felt, Whoa, like dizzy and, this is so fun and ah, oh, you yes, know, and yes, gates opening, and I want more, more, more. <laughs> yes, yes, I can so relate to that experience. You know, you said something amazing, Amber, that I wanted to touch on, which is as you were experiencing this bullying and. Uh, really being victimized in in, in uh, a very w- real way. You said, I became further bonded to self. And that is such a great 
perceptive awareness of what happened to you during that time. And I can absolutely relate. I was bullied too as a child. And, uh, you know, we understand stuff backwards, right? But you said bonded to yes. self and that's exactly what's happening. And then, and then you're looking for that relief, right? Because, you know, yeah. being bonded to self, it, it, it can be painful. Um, oh, yeah. And so what a great way to describe that, Amber, being bonded to yourself. And um, you had to, the only way that you do at the time to experience that freedom of bondage of self was alcohol. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. There was, um, and then thank God for recovery today that I can see that because I, I didn't know that then, of course, no, <laughs> like, no. if somebody would have been like, Hey, don't drink, um, you know, release your feelings with prayer. Right. Like I might've tried that too, but, um, you know, right. that's, yeah. Absolutely. That's not really what happened. No. We all have this journey. So, but yeah, so it was, it was more and more and more of like sneaking and lying and guilt because guilt is a fact. And, um, and I was guilty often. I was constantly starting to lie to my parents, um, going to go to parties and saying I'm going to a sleepover but really having the full intention and not even telling my friends I remember not telling my friends what my intentions were but we were going to break into some liquor cabinets of your Absolutely. parents and my parents my parents <laughs> didn't drink I thought they were boring you yeah, know like right. I had forgotten. <laughs> yeah I had forgotten the dysfunctionality inside of the dysfunction inside of the alcoholic behaviors and the parties and such that I had loathed so much as a child and wanted what I wanted and I wanted relief. So oh, give me bingo. You know. Nothing was more important than that. Was it? No, uh, -uh. nothing nope. was more important nothing. than that relief. And I can so identify with that. And I know that there's so many of the way out podcast audience that can identify with that. Nothing was more important than the relief nothing uh, yeah. but at first it was pleasure pleasure a lot of pressure and some relief uh, mixed in uh, and you know as my disease progressed it was all about relief can you relate mm -hmm. to that amber absolutely absolutely that's what it it became uh an absolute the potion became the solution to all of my troubles and um so anytime i had a trouble if it wasn't um, if, if alcohol was not accessible, which it, it was really hard, it was really difficult actually to wrangle in the, the booze, you know, at a young age. So I remember going to pot and thinking, wow, well, this is a little easier in Montana. Uh, a lot of people that I knew, a lot of teenagers would, would smoke weed. So of course I was curious about that. And, um, so I started down that road and quickly, <laughs> quickly got in trouble with that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's so funny. My, my experience definitely mirrors that because booze was so difficult to get. Like you said, it was regulated. You had to either steal it out of a parent's liquor cabinet or you had to find someone somehow to break the law for you to buy it at a liquor store. So that was fear yeah. and far, far between. But pot was everywhere everywhere my next door neighbor was a giant pot dealer so it was so easy to get weed and i liked that a lot too by the way a lot right because it gave me a similar yeah. sense of ease and comfort right um and yeah. so it, you know i mean my my neighbor had his own phone line and would answer the <laughs> phone joe's pizza how can i help you you know <laughs> and, and he wasn't selling pizza We'll be right back with the second half of part one of my interview with Amber as we pause for this week's edition of Recovery Revealed, where we take a closer look at our particular aspect of recovery. When we talk about recovery, often it is related to the recovery of a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body while in active addiction and or alcoholism. My experience in recovery is that there doesn't have to be limits or boundaries on what recovery means to you, nor how it manifests in your life. Generally, recovery allows the person to come out of active addiction and or alcoholism with the most prominent feature of the disease in remission, 
which is the obsession to use or drink. For many of us, that is simply the beginning of a path to holistic wellness in mind, body, and spirit. Physical sobriety for us isn't usually enough. We needed to pursue paths to wellness. Ironically, the biggest factor in my own recovery and subsequent path to wellness was the one facet I had neglected the most and patently disregarded. That was my spiritual wellness. Working the first three steps allowed my spirituality to reawaken and begin to positively affect my physical and emotional wellness as well. Our wellness isn't confined into compartments that don't affect each other. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Poor physical health can and does drag on mental and spiritual health. And the same goes for each other aspect of our overall wellness. It figures, therefore, that when we improve one component of our wellness, that others receive a residual benefit. That said, it has been my overwhelming experience in my own life and those I have both interviewed on this podcast and associated with in the rooms of recovery that nothing has as great of an overall wellness effect than that of a spiritual awakening. These don't have to be of the burning bush variety, nor a bolt of lightning followed by a thundering word of God. The truth is, a spiritual awakening can take many forms. The Dalai Lama once said, people take different roads seeking fulfillment and happiness. Just because they're not on your road doesn't mean they're lost. Spiritual awakenings are marked by a distinct feeling that something has changed within you. Awareness of old and negative habits, a deep, strong desire to make the world a better place, a yearning for meaning and purpose, and a willingness to know and be your authentic self. Awareness to the foods you eat and the loss of interest in worrying Actions are increasingly becoming love-based instead of fear-based, and there is a loss of interest in conflict. My own path to a spiritual experience was through the working of the 12 steps, which produced a profound and powerful spiritual experience within me that continues to be the single greatest gift of my recovery. That said, the 12 steps are not the only way to recover, nor are they the exclusive path to a spiritual experience and awakening. Regardless of the path one takes to experience a spiritual awakening, it is an experience that one should not miss. Now back to the second half of part one of my interview with Amber Murphy. Listen up. I, I knew I was living wrong and I was like, I felt like convicted inside of my soul and spirit that maybe I wasn't doing things right and then crying, but then turning away from God again when I was invited to other parties where alcohol was involved. Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. So... (laughs) That's how that is. Wow. Yeah. 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 I remember the the first time I smoked, I didn't have an effect. And then I thought it was stupid. Right. And then the second time I cashed a whole bowl and I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> and I turned green. Like I remember my, 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 my brother, my stepbrother at the time, he was like, what did you do? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? And he's like, did you smoke the whole thing? And I was like, yeah, why? And he goes, oh my gosh, you're going to be so sick. And I remember walking to the bus stop and I, I believe I was in the seventh or eighth grade. I think I was in eighth grade. And I remember walking to the bus stop and it was like almost a mile to the bus stop and, uh, and feeling like, uh, oh, uh, oh, what's going right. to happen next. And Whoops. then getting so sick at school, lying to the principal telling them I had to go to my grandmother's, even though my grandmother lived in Minnesota, she didn't live in Montana, and like copying up this whole story with my friend to go to her grandmother's house and like just sleep all day and swear it off for the rest of my life. I will never smoke pot ever, 
ever, never, ever. I was so sick and I was so high and I just slept all that day thinking how miserable I was. But then that night I was invited to a party. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was invited to a party and um, and there weren't any parents around because I had lied to mine and my friends had lied to theirs. And we were all at a party and this cute boy was smoking a bong. And I was like, oh, yeah, pass me that, you know, just to fit in. It was like a fitting in. I had such a, a need for approval oh. from my peers that yeah, that drives that it was just, yeah, give me more. So, yeah, and the um, and then that was that what was there, and I wanted to be cool and fit in. I wanted that guy to like me, and and you know, then goes my pot smoking, and then I got in trouble with that, like um, a year, not even a year later, and there was like a whole town drug bust and I was part of it and um and then you know my mother's disapproval of me was actually what uh in my actions because I was caught (laughs) with the law (laughs) um is what actually made me want to never do that again like I just realized that there was a there was a better way of of living and I wasn't on the right path so that was was that sort of that moment Amber that you know started your process of you know, recovery? Well, from, I think, I think actually, maybe, I mean, as far as like recovery from pot, Mm -hmm. absolutely, like from the actual drug of marijuana, but, um, but from like, spiritual matters, I mean, I guess maybe that's possible. I never really thought of it that way, because I started going to church, actually, that same year and I knew I was living wrong and I was like I felt like convicted inside of my soul and spirit that maybe I wasn't doing things right and then crying but then turning away from God again when I was invited to other parties where alcohol was involved so so yeah I had like this Sort of this awakening, this, uh, sort of this, I call them like these moments of clarity, right? You had a moment of clarity I, where, uh oh this is yeah. this is something's not right in you know you look in the proverbial mirror and identify that you know uh this isn't not only does this not feel good anymore um uh but this this is there there might be a problem here right uh right. maybe not enough to make you know a complete sobriety change at this point but Sounds like maybe that was the first consequence that, you know, really sort of woke you up a little bit uh, and made made you look at your use a little bit differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember feeling like the odd one out all of a sudden because now I don't smoke pot. Now I'm not going to parties. I need to focus on my grades because before I was going into school like um, high and now like my grades are kind of suffering a little bit. And so I started to, you know, be more present and not be high anymore so I could focus on my grades. And I remember being made fun of at school. I remember people are like, Oh, don't talk to her. She'll get, she'll get us in trouble. And people were calling me little goody two shoes. And and there was this, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh gosh. I got that for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I remember feeling like odd and strange again, and and that was painful to feel that way. And, um, and because I needed your approval so bad, you know, I was under that was that that delusion. So, uh, so then again, um, my mom, my mom and my stepdad moved when I, that was when I was a sophomore in high school that I got into that trouble. And so, um, so I guess it was like a year and a half at least, or maybe even almost two years of smoking pot. And then we moved to um, Colorado. Our family was relocated to Colorado and I had the option. Do you want to move with the family to Colorado and finish your sophomore year of high school? Or do you want to live with your grandfather in Minnesota and finish your sophomore of high school with your cousins? Well, my cousins were like my brothers and sisters and there was less fear inside of going to a school with them than all by myself again. Absolutely. So I chose 
to live with grandpa here in Minnesota and finish my sophomore year of high school. Well, then quickly, I, uh, you know, it was still, I was still like the new kid and still like figuring out who to hang out with and who not to. And, um, but all the cool, cute guys were all smoking pot and drinking. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 um, and so, and also I had so much still bondage to myself that I wanted that relief. And I still had that mental obsession with, well, alcohol, I never got in trouble with, you know? So, I mean, I just had some crazy thought processes going on as a child and not actually, uh, as a teenager and not actually talking about them with my parents, but keeping them inward because they're sober. They don't understand. Right. They couldn't, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, I didn't possibly identify with what I'm going through. No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> They're such wet blankets. They don't know. They don't even party. It's funny Not you even. talk about the drinking and the obsession because, you know, I don't know, for, for me, when I stopped smoking pot, my alcohol use climbed dramatically, both in how often I did it, but also how much I drank. And I'm wondering... Can you relate to that? Did you uh, did, did did something similar occur with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I went back to more alcohol, and um, my grandfather would go to bed at like six p.m. That's amazing. And, that yeah, really happens. It's he, real life. People go to bed at six o'clock. That's awesome. Yeah, he had to work. I think at three or four in the morning. So, I would sneak out and. Um, I worked at uh, a place called Perkins uh, restaurant and there were people that were older that they could buy alcohol. So, um, you know, and they were creepy. They were the creepy guys. (laughs) Right. Right. Absolutely. Not the kind of guys that you want to be spending any sort of extended quality time with. No, no, but they, they serve their purpose in my life. So I was, you know, I was going to get that booze. And if I had to hang out with the creepy guy to get the booze, then I would. Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah, so I would, you know, I would hang out with uh, people that were very broken. I shouldn't say creepy. I should say broken. Right. And like myself um, and, and and really bonded to self and, and partying and, um, and just, yeah, it progressed. But it wasn't until... It, it, there was there was many things that happened throughout high school where I wasn't sure like what was going on. Like I knew that there's something going on internally inside of me, like that didn't make sense. And I was trying to figure out with poetry because I'm a writer, right? So I was a, I was writing poetry since the age of eight, and my poetry started to get darker, and then it would get lighter and darker. And I remember wondering why. Like I kept going back and forth between this dark and light stuff inside of my art, and um. And then, like, thinking maybe I shouldn't drink as much and trying to, like, monitor how much I'm drinking and mostly monitoring it so that my parents don't find out. Because every time they find out something, then it has to, like, the fun ends, you know? So I have to manage so, this. So I have to, right? So you're in this active process at that point of managing uh, your alcoholism, you know, the, your obsession. Absolutely. Yep. So I remember moving again to Colorado and I was, I was becoming the friend, um, quickly becoming the friend of which the parents were very like upset with their children for hanging out with. Ah, yes. The bad influence. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 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 I don't don't like you hanging out with that Amber. She's, she's, she's bad news. (laughs) but I had this and I had this double life already going on like um that you know the I was good and then oh how dare you see me as bad let me show you how good I am you know kind of thing going on and I I couldn't even I I call that the Jekyll and Hyde right absolutely yeah yep absolutely so the parents were aware and keen and um and I was not. And um, so I would just like do 
as much as I could to drink as much as I could and party as much as I could. But I wanted my friends to do it with me so I wasn't so bad. So I was bringing people into my partying and my alcoholism. And I, I mean, I clearly remember um, pouring more booze in my friends' drinks so that they would be as drunk as me. You know, just delusional. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I want you to be on my level. Exactly. Even if exactly. you don't want to be on my level, I want you to be on my level. And I am going to do whatever I can to help you be on my yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. The delusion is sick. <laughs> the delusion is real. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the disease that we have, right? Yeah. That has nothing yeah. to do with the drinking. That has nothing to do with alcohol. That's our disease in full force, right? Yep. Alcohol is the yep. solution. And, you know, that's the way I, I, I understand it today, right? Like alcohol was my, was my solution. The disease was inside of me. Yep, exactly. The disease. Yep. That was yeah. So, the... and I love that you split that up. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Disease. I was constantly in disease and discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. So I think I. For an answer, right. And a solution. So that I could get out of that dis-ease. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and the need for approval was so, in, it was so thick. It was so thick that, um, and the, the, the resentment would come up when I didn't get the approval. And what's our, what's our number one offender, you know, oh, resentment. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that you don't approve of me. Now I am going to sort of, I'm going to sort of perpetrate that back on you in a retaliatory kind of way, right? Yeah. Um, because mm-hmm. I I desperately need that approval, but if you're not going to give it to me, uh, uh, you, you look out, right? Look right. out. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I absolutely yep. identify with that that anger that 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 sort of seeding anger that would come out if I felt like you rejected me, right? Because that's what really that is to me. Like, if you disapprove of me, at least at that time, it was a rejection. And I and I didn't deal with that well at all. No. Yeah, and then there's more delusion that I remember. Like, if somebody did disapprove of me, well, they just didn't meet my drunk self. <laughs> <laughs> wait till they party with me. They're going to love me. Yeah, wait till they... Wait till you party with me. My shirt's a little bit more unbuttoned, and then you'll yeah. really like who I am. You'll you know? Really like, yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Then I'll, because yep. I can, then all of the inhibitions are gone, and I can really put on all the stops so that you like me. Exactly, exactly. So, so how does this progress, Amber? Yeah. How does your drinking, how does this progress? And at one point, yeah. does it come to sort of a, uh, a head for you? So I remember being, well, I mean, fast forward, I mean, all this is going on more and more and more and more drinking, more and more hiding, more and more lying, more and more guilt, more and more bondage to self. It's progressing. Your disease is progressing. No room for um, any kind of spiritual life, no room for any truth, because inside of all this guilt, there is no room for truth. I'm just not allowing truth in. So I'm doing everything backwards in my life and thinking backwards. And I'm, I, I've got money on my mind. I've got sex on my mind. I've got men on my mind. I've got fame on my mind. And I, I go to school for acting in New York. And because I'm a really good liar. So I'll be a really good actress. You know? <laughs> right, so, sure. And I remember having that thought. Like, I, I mean, I loved the art of acting. Don't get me wrong. But I knew that I would be good at it because I did it every day. Right. And so... I went to school for acting and when I was about to graduate school in New York city, um, I I had a breakup with someone that I thought that I was in love with. Now I see desire is not love, but at the time I thought I was in love with him and it was a great drunken relationship and he ghosted, he left, he didn't tell me why, but he just stopped talking to me after four months. And, um, that I think is when the progression really hit a different level because I called in sick with a broken leg to work, even though I did not have a broken leg. 
And I, I proceeded to drink by myself every single day that I was home. Every day feeling so, the, so the self-pity that I suffer from as an alcoholic really came over me like a cloud of doom and gloom. And my life's not worth living. This man doesn't love me anymore. I'm, I'm worth nothing. And alcohol became my best, closest friend in that week. And I can clearly remember it. And so you, I know. You, you sort of went into this sort of uh, um, week-long drinking binge because of these overwhelming feelings, right? Like um, uh, that abandonment and that rejection sent you into a tailspin. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, um, and then I thought New York City was the problem. So I moved back home to Minnesota and became a bartender. And I was going to move to L.A., but as a bartender, I was taking, you know, Captain and my Coke almost every day and getting very, very drunk and blacking out. The blackouts were always from being a teenager. I, I didn't I there was no there was no um, time that I remember not really blacking out. I think the first time I ever got drunk, I had a blackout. So I was a blackout drunk. Um, and, you know, that's just my control center going we are shutting down. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too much alcohol. Exactly. Too much alcohol. So, yes. Um, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Having that, you know, as a pro- so that it's progressing even more because now I'm drinking almost every single day and I'm lying and I'm cheating and I'm doing whatever, you know, I, there's no carrying on in a real relationship because I have these delusions that no man can ever stay because this one guy. You know, so I have these delusions that um, my delusion is getting greater and I'm believing lie after lie after lie inside of my own mind as fact. And um, the alcoholism is just progressing and the self-centeredness and the selfishness is just progressing and the fear is just progressing that I need that drink. I need that relief. Um, And uh, I'm living like in this bubble, alcoholic bubble. And I decide to leave Minnesota and go to LA and I'm like in LA I'm I'm starting to seek because I know something is seriously wrong because I'm crying on the beach I'm reaching out to God right for the first time in a very long time and I'm like something is not right with me like God please help me like something isn't right you know and 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 then I would go I worked at the Rainbow Bar and Grill I don't know if you're familiar on Sunset in Los Angeles and I'm drinking every single night I work and I'm drinking crafts of wine, not just like, you know, a glass. I don't think I've ever just drank a glass. <laughs> <laughs> really bad at math right. if Who we say that? we only have I mean uh, a yeah. glass, have apple juice. Yeah, right? Wait, you want to put me to sleep? I'll I drink don't. a I, have... I don't understand. Yeah. I don't get it. Why? Why only one? That doesn't make any sense to me. None. Zero. <laughs> So I, I, I'm, I'm like sleeping in my car and, um, you know, ending up at people's houses that I don't know, partying constantly, blacking out, going to work, blacking out, waking up, going to work, blacking out. And this is my life. And I remember looking at this guy who was a homeless man on this uh, park bench. And I remember feeling like I could be him and like breaking down in my car and like crying on my steering wheel and like looking up at this man and thinking, why do I think I could be this man? And, you know, there was just, I was seeking, like I was asking God questions, even though really I didn't even know what I was doing. I, my, my soul was crying out. And, um, so that same year, um, my, uh, my, a friend of mine from high school came into my life and we ended up falling in love and he moved me to Washington state and he was like going to be my superhero, you know, like, um, he, but he started telling me he thought I was an alcoholic. Like maybe I had problems and he was like holding my hair while I would puke in the toilet. And he would say, finally, he said, I'm not doing this anymore. And then my best friend was thinking I was an alcoholic. The, the, the cat was out of the bag. 
Like right. something was going right. You were but... no longer able to sort of keep this Jekyll and Hyde going. No. And it was more Jekyll no. and less Hyde. And it sounds yeah. like <laughs> it sounds like and I could relate to this in, in such a intimate way, Amber, that the solution that you had been using for so long in alcohol very, very much began to be the problem and uh, and manifested itself as a unmanageable problem at this time. That's all the time we have for this week. Stay tuned for next week's episode with the conclusion of my interview with author of Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down, Amber Murphy. Don't forget to check out Amber's website at can'tkeepasobergirldown.com. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.